I've had people come to me and say, you know, what so after the vaccine, what's work gonna look like? And my answer is always determine it. Determine it yourself. Figure out what you need. You know, we 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 sort of called BS on a lot of what we thought worked. This month on Ebb and Flow, we speak with the man at the helm of the Harvard Business Review. Editor-in-Chief Adi Ignatius takes us behind the scenes discussing the challenges of covering a tumultuous 2020, the evolving interests of HBR's large and sophisticated readership, and the issues likely to dominate the year ahead. Adi also takes us into the room for some of his most memorable interviews with CEOs, academics, and household names like Anthony Fauci and Vladimir Putin. I'm your host, Paul Leeming, and on behalf of the UBS Long River Wealth Management team, welcome to this month's edition of Ebb and Flow. Adi Ignatius, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks, Paul. It's glad to be here. So, fair warning, Adi, I'm going to end this interview with a tough question, so I'm going to start with, I'd say, a layup question about your very interesting background. And as we mentioned in the intro, you are currently the editor-in-chief of Harvard Business Review, but you've come by way of senior posts at Time Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, and other notable media organizations. Why did you choose this line of work, and what was the path to your current role? Well, I sort of fell into it accidentally at first. I was fairly directionless in college until I fell in love with China, with all things China. Uh, studied the language traveled there as soon as the U.S. normalized relations with, with Beijing. Um, and when I graduated, I just I wanted to be back in Asia. I applied to a lot of places, and, you know, one person responded and sent me a contract. It was to be a news editor or something called Petroleum News. I didn't know anything about petroleum or news at that point, but it was a way to get out to Asia. <laughs> and, you know, I stuck with it, and I... I I have loved this job. You know, I worked at the Wall Street Journal in Asia, I worked at Time Magazine for many years, now Harvard Business Review, and it just quickly became my calling. It, it became the type of work experience where you just say, I can't believe they're paying me to do this because it's fascinating along the way. That's the kind of job I, I suppose we all look for in life, and that's great that you found it. So, Adi, I know you're going to cringe, but I have to do this. I read that at Time Magazine when you were there, you were responsible for the person of the year feature and that through that you had the chance to spend some time with Vladimir Putin. So can you give us the the 30 second or maybe 60 second version of that story? Yeah, but cringe. Come on. I I hope to dine out on this anecdote for the rest of my life. (laughs) So this is 2007 and we had made the decision at time where I was then to make Putin the person of the year. So a few of us spent several hours with him in his dacha outside of Moscow. And it was it was fascinating. It was jarring. I mean, he um, he was combative. He wore his grievances on his sleeve. He seemed to view us as, I don't know, representatives of America and American government and American culture. And we just got this sort of angry tirade um, from him about the injustices that he thought had been done to Russia. So it was, it really knocked us off our, our feet in some ways because we, you know, we, we're time magazine, you know, so we have, we had uh, serious questions and soft questions and the soft questions he, he wouldn't even engage with. He laughed once in three and a half hours and it was to make fun of me at one point. I mean, it was, it was very intense. And then at the end of this conversation and then dinner, in the middle of a multi-course dinner where 
the menu was pre-printed, so we knew there were several courses to go. Putin just gets up and he says, well, I can see everyone's finished, and I will say goodbye. And he walks out of the room, <laughs> which is extraordinary for, for anyone to do, and, and in the circumstance. But it was, he was, I think, clearly trying to show he was in charge. Uh, he pretended he didn't care about this honorific of person of the year, when I think he, he cared deeply, but calculated that it was in the bag. I remember it ended and we were all, you know, practically shaky about this experience. And I looked later in my notes and I had written about Putin. Definitely not cuddling. <laughs> good, good summary. Good summary. That's a uh, quite a power play to get up and leave the table midway through. <laughs> well, let, let's let's move on to your your current role at Harvard Business Review, which I'll I'll call HBR from from here on out. But in perusing the digital editions of HBR, I'm struck by the sort of sheer breadth of topics you cover, everything from, you know, work-life balance to tech innovation to ethics to venture capitalism. So I wonder, what's your editorial process for conceiving content and then prioritizing it across such a, a broad menu of subject matter? And before you answer, Adi, I also read an article in your most recent edition advising companies to narrow their offerings if they want to be market leaders. So you're going to have to reconcile that advice too here. I see. So you're going to, you're going to hold us up to uh, our own advice. Okay. All right. It's going to be like that. It's a great question. It's a question we ask ourselves all the time. I mean, it used to be that part of the industry, we edited from the inbox. Mm-hmm. We would get these big research-based pieces, usually from academics. They'd come in and we'd pick the best. We still do some of that. But now we're far more proactive to kind of identify the topics that businesses care most about right at this moment. And we do a lot of survey work with, you know, advisory council that we have of of more than 10,000 of our our readers in our our world Mm -hmm. to determine, you know, what are the topics that people care most about? What is it that they expect and want from Harvard Business Review? So core topics like strategy and leadership and all that are still critical. We do a lot of them. but, But now in response to this demand, really, we're doing far more on, I guess, what you'd call softer skills, and you mentioned some of them, things like emotional intelligence, which we, and I think generally is viewed now as an essential part of effective leadership. Things like, as you mentioned, work-life balance, things that sound super soft, like do you get enough sleep? All of this contributes to our goal of, you know, how do you run institutions more effectively, and then how do you manage your career most effectively? During the pandemic, it's meant really being even more topical you know, Christ, uh, leadership in a crisis, um, the future of work, even, uh, you know, some of the issues on uh, creating a sustaining diverse workforce that's become uh, kind of a more urgent, a more urgent issue. You know, you see, we didn't touch topical, and now topical issues are as much part of what we do as, as the sort of timeless. So you mentioned the pandemic and your and your your coverage throughout this this tough period, and obviously it's been a tumultuous year, not only because of the pandemic, but from uh, as a result of the economic fallout, the the political uncertainty we've seen, the social unrest we've seen this year, and earlier this year you referenced within one of your your pieces HBR's ability and responsibility to cover these events with new thinking. So what did you mean by that? And, and how do you personally approach this responsibility? Well, what I meant by that, what I mean by that is that a lot of what's happening is a business challenge. I mean, look, 2020 has been a bear for all of us, no matter where we are, or what we do. But 
among other things, it is a business challenge. So it's a moment to think about, you know, how do we rethink work? We're already starting to think, what's the purpose of an office, of a physical office? If you'd asked me this a year ago, I would have said, well, it's essential because we get together and we collaborate. If we didn't have that, we wouldn't be very effective. Well, suddenly the pandemic hit and we and a lot of other people out there transitioned to work at home very smoothly. Mm. So that opens big questions that we think we're well-placed, you know, and our author base is well-placed to try to, to try to provide insight. So the future of work, leading in a crisis like this, how to, how to set yourself up for what we assume will be a world in which we see kind of constant crisis. I mean, nobody thinks this is the last big hit we're going to face, but rather that um, we're going to need, I don't know, radically adaptable leaders and workers, and that that will make the difference between uh, success and, and failure. So, um, you know, you asked how do, how do we personally approach this responsibility? I think, you know, nowadays, you know, one of the big issues is to what extent companies, executives, our readers, you know, to what extent are they expected to get involved in social issues? And, you know, years ago, Milton Friedman thinking he would have said, well, they're not. You know, if they just run a company and, and do so profitably, the benefits will trickle down. That's all they need to think about. That's not really where we are now. And it's, it's partly because employees want to work for companies that they identify with. People want to buy products from companies that they identify with. So we're trying to help executives think this wasn't part of the job description when a lot of CEOs got their jobs, and now they realize they're in the middle of all of these kind of social, sometimes even, even political moments, and neutrality is an option because Twitter will assign a meaning to your neutrality. So we're you know, trying to help people understand how to respond in these very volatile moments. It's interesting. I, there are two points there that you, you made that resonated with me. One was the you know the the required adaptability of of workers in this environment. I mean, you know, in my own experience on this team of ten at, at Long River Wealth Management, you know, we had to we had to switch from office to to remote in in a matter of you know essentially minutes, and it, it seems to have worked well. And now, of course, the question is is where do we go from from here when this thing passes? And and those are interesting interesting yeah. questions. This is the reality of, of working from home. The other thing, obviously, you mentioned pertains to, you know, the sort of social responsibility of companies. And, you know, we, too, hear a lot from clients about uh, questions about ESG or environmental social governance factors with yep. investing. So it's, it's a, definitely a growing, growing topic. So, Adi, you and I have something in common, and, and I'm not going to make you guess what that might be, but I'm talking about podcasts or vodcasts. We've both recently waded into this medium. And I have to admit, while I'm thrilled with the guests, including you, that we've had on this program, uh, I'm, I'm humbled by the high bar you've set with your interviews on, on your HBR now. So whether it's CEOs or academics, innovators, or even Anthony Fauci, you've, you've spoken to some fascinating people on your new channel. So what are some highlights from your, you know, vodcast podcasts? And maybe what was your most interesting interview this year? So, so just talking about, I mean, so one of the reasons we have in common is the the bar to entry for this kind of these kinds of platforms is, is really low now, and I don't mean to denigrate the two of us, but <laughs> it just means it's it, and especially with the pandemic, the accessibility of people. You know, if I want to try to get a, a Dr. Fauci on the show, I, I don't need to fly him somewhere, hell, and have him clear a space for this. It really is 
less than an hour of his time to log in you know, to on his Zoom call to do this. So, you know, I, I love this platform. I mean, we're, we're doing live video show every Tuesday on LinkedIn, LinkedIn Live. I like that it's raw. You can engage with viewers immediately, taking their questions. Sort of know that everything could screw up. So when it doesn't, it's exhilarating. I mean, there is something about live that, that's very exciting. But we have had good guests. It's the power of the brand for sure. And, and I guess the Rolodex that I've, I've built up over the years. We've had the CEOs of Pfizer, Moderna, Ikea, PayPal, Cisco. As you said, we've had Dr. Fauci. We had Tom Friedman, Arianna Huffington, mm-hmm. Walter Isaacson, Samantha Power. You know, the best, it might have been this week with a woman named Renee Myers, who runs Inclusion Strategy at Netflix, who is not as famous as some of these people. She is an amazing speaker. She's the one who came up with the line that, you know, I've seen you since then which is diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. <laughs> That's a great line. I've heard it before. Well, I commend you on, on the program and, and the, the new channel and, and encourage everyone listening to also listen to, to that program on the HPR website. So, Adi, speaking of your website, yours, like that of many media organizations, has a, a most popular tab near, near the top of the page. And I looked at it yesterday as I was researching this this interview, and and the the top piece as of then was called "The Right Way to Give Negative Feedback to Your Manager." I'll let people read that article for themselves. I know I have, but my question for you is: if you're ever surprised by what readers find interesting? Yes, often. I mean, we used to try to predict what would do well. We never really got it right. I mean, so here's a great example. So we had a piece that for us this year went just super viral. Um, it's probably up to 9 million page views by now. Yeah. And it was early on during lockdown, and we interviewed one of the world's recognized experts on grief, David Kessler, who wrote the book on the five stages of grief. So he identified the discomfort that we were all feeling in March, and maybe still, and the headline that we put on the piece was that discomfort you're feeling is grief. So this piece just took off. And again, you know, well, my chairman at one point said, that's really great. You know, why not you assign an editor to do one of those monster pieces every month? And what I told her, the point is you don't know. I mean, we assumed that that piece would have average page views or maybe fewer, so you just don't know what will take off. And in that case, it was something that wasn't very HBR at all, but that which somehow put its finger on what we were all feeling and, and, and experiencing at that moment. Adi, another f- feature that has historically been popular, but which you which you actually stopped doing this year, was ranking CEOs. Can, can you talk a little bit about um, that sort of process and and why you've you've suspended that at this point? Yeah, this has been a tough one. Um, so yeah, for for several years, we've done an annual list every year of the 100 best performing CEOs globally. Um, I always liked the list because it was based on a formula; it wasn't just anecdotal or based on recent results or anything. We measure total shareholder return dating back to day one of the CEO's tenure. And then we factored in ESG data, as you mentioned earlier, environmental social governance, factored it at 20% of the total. So 80% total shareholder return, 20% uh, ESG. And I like that, that we were putting our finger on ESG as an important consideration when you think about good performing companies and good performing, you know, the strong performing CEOs. And that 20% ranking could make all the difference. Jeff Bezos goes from number one on total shareholder return to not even in the top 100 when you include ESG ratings from 
various independent agencies. The reason that we dropped it this year, every year it turned out a list of you know, 97 or 98 men, mostly white male, and two or three women. And the, the formula we used didn't penalize them. It just reflected exactly the number of women that there are in the top positions in business. And every year I would get a lot of criticism and I'd have to write a piece that explained, yes, we understand that this list doesn't look good, but here's what's going on. Finally, in a consultation with, with various stakeholders, we decided in some ways publishing the list every year almost seemed to, I don't know, celebrate the status quo. So we just decided it, it you know, that, that we didn't want to keep perpetuating it. I, I'd say the response to that has been overwhelmingly positive, but has also created some anger. There, you know, there's certainly discussions on LinkedIn and elsewhere thinking that we did the wrong thing. That sure. just because we're not, we don't like the optics of the result, you know, we shouldn't throw away the project. And I, I understand that, but you know, I don't think we're going to bring it back anytime soon. So, Adi, I'm not sure one would know this from reading HBR, but you come from a storied family in many ways, including your brother, David Ignatius, whom many may know as a columnist for the Washington Post, and your father, Paul Ignatius, who is still with us at 100 years old and still, I understand, accurately retelling stories of his career as U.S. Secretary of the Navy. I didn't know your late mother, but I suspect she was fascinating as well. Can you talk about your family and how it has shaped you personally? Yeah. I hope that's not the hard question. That seems like a nice question. No, that's still uh, to come. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, it's, it's hard to self-analyze. I mean, we grew up in D.C. My brother and I became journalists. My two sisters both became lawyers. You know, we used to sit around the dinner table talking about issues. And, you know, once I developed an interest in Russia, say, the, the tone in the family was almost like a newscast. You know, my parents would ask, well, Adi, you know, what do you think about Boris Yeltsin's new initiative? My wife, Cinda, who, you know, married into this and now sort of gets the same treatment. It's almost like, Dr. Dr. Kissinger, tell us about China. But, you know, you can make fun of it, but we grew up interested in issues. And we grew up interested in service, which is the great theme of my father's life, who, as you say, is still going strong at age 100. You know, I think my brother and I chose service in the field of journalism, which we both feel can be a higher calling, you know, in keeping our elected officials accountable and in informing people about what's what's accurate and what's important. And, you know, my lawyers became, I mean, my sisters became lawyers. And, you know, I think, <laughs> so I don't know, I, I, I guess we grew up with a sense of engagement and, and engagement in sort of the issues of our time. And, and I, we were talking before the interview, um, so I hope I'm not revealing anything here, but that you still keep in touch with the family almost daily with a call. Is, is that true? So we have a, so, you know, my dad's a hundred and he's, he is enduring this lockdown. He lives alone. He takes care of himself. My brother luckily is in DC where he is, so he can visit and do some shopping for him. But, you know, my father's enduring and he's super positive. He's, his, his mind is sharper than mine, so, but, you know, he's lonely, so he's, we call him every single, you know, the four siblings, or, you know, his four children call him every single night, really, and have a 20-minute conversation just to sort of be there for him. That's, it's, it's um, truly admirable, one of the great stories out of, out of this, um, this horrible period. So, Adi, here's the tough question, and, and uh, let's see how you do here. Um, Maybe we can treat this as a teaser for a future conversation because I, I know we can't do it justice right now. But from your seat at the head of an influential publication, 
in regular conversation with some of the world's most insightful and you know, forward-thinking people. When you look ahead to 2021, what do you think will be the major issues we'll be facing as a society, and how will we do? Wow, okay. Um, well, all right, so here are a few. You know, I mentioned before, the future of work, I mean, that phrase, people are just hungry for insight. So I think, you know, we're all pretty sure the new normal won't be like the old. And I think in 2021, we're going to really find our way there. I've had people come to me and say, you know, what's so, after the vaccine, what's work going to look like? And my answer is always, determine it. Determine it yourself. Figure out what you need. You know, we've, we've, we've sort of called BS on a lot of what we thought work looked like or how we needed to um, gather physically or not to get stuff done. So I think the remaking of institutions is, is ready to happen and that's spurred by the pandemic. It could be, it could be possible unless you're a commercial real estate right. uh, owner. I think polarization is still number one. I mean, you know, no matter how the election continues to play out in the country, um, you know, it's interesting. So Charles Koch, said just before the election that he thought his sort of hyper-partisanship was a mistake, you know, I'd, I'd love to reach out to him and, and love to reach out to people on the left. And yet, you know, could, could Harvard Business Review do something to address the polarization that I think most of us are appalled by and yet can't seem to figure out how do we get to the middle? And if we don't, I think that, that's, that's a problem that's not going to go away. And I, I guess there's there's a lot of pent up frustration. I don't see where that where that goes right now. And I think it's it comes from underrepresented groups who might not be impressed with what may be the slow pace of progress in various institutions and certainly within this country. And then a, you know a disaffected working class that isn't likely to see any quick gains either. So you know there's an underlying volatility that I really worry about. And, you know, the best solution for that is an economy that it grows back strongly and not just in a couple of sectors like tech, but it's more broad. But I think I think it's going to take some time. So, you know, this is, this is a tricky year. So those are some of the things that we're watching. Well, they're all interesting topics. I, I was intrigued by you mentioning polarization, an idea that I heard several years ago, actually, about, you know, the, the, the pendulum swinging between you know, the, the two polar extremes are far right and far left, but that, uh, you know, there will come a time when it may s swing in a different way from the extremes to the middle. And, and maybe that's, uh, this is one of uh, those times, but we shall see. So Adi Ignatius, thank you for your time today and for all of your comments and all that you're doing and covering at Harvard Business Review. We appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you, Paul. This is a lot of fun. 